Welcome to the Pro-Life Team Podcast. I'm Jacob Barr. I'm here with Dr. Joe, and we're going to be talking about what is best for a young woman and how that also aligns with what's best for our communities and society. So Dr. Joe, I am really excited to have you on here today to talk about life issues and ideas surrounding uh, life and pro-life. Um, would you introduce yourself as if you were talking to a, a small group of pro-life friends? Sure. Well, I'd have to say, first of all, I'm really glad to be here. Um, it hasn't been very long for me. Uh, God has really had a very providential way of getting me where I'm at. The, the pathway to uh, joining and being part of the pro-life movement has been really circuitous, I guess you'd say, but all in a good way. And uh, so... I wasn't really aware. I mean, I was aware of the pro-life movement uh, two years ago, but I'm not, I wasn't, didn't have any idea the, the level of commitment and uh, um, just the, the noble cause that it is and, and the people that are working so hard at it and also have worked for many, many years. So uh, I'll, I'll share my story of how I ended up getting here. Um, and there's God's fingerprints all over it as I've, as I've looked back. But uh, I'm really glad to be here and honored to be part of part of this. So, yeah, would you go ahead and how, how did you um, how did God bring you into this work? Like, what does your origin story look like? Well, again, um, it's going to be a little complex. I'm going to try to make it as short as possible. But okay. I was working in the fitness industry back in the mid 90s, from the mid 90s to about 2005. And I was really discouraged because uh, there, a lot of folks were, I mean, tons of folks were coming to us because of the lifestyle and uh, so unhealthy. And I literally had uh, a, one of my clients, I was doing personal training as well as managing. Um, he, he, he died on the beach down in Florida and got a call on that. And that was really hard to, hard to take. Um, and then I had had the experience. I was on management duty and one of the gentlemen that I had gotten to know and become friends with there in the club, I found out was women were just running by my office and just yelling, you know, screaming. So I knew something was wrong. I didn't even wait for the beeper, which was what we used back then. I, and I followed it down to the, the panic down to where the, this gentleman was, he was ha having a heart attack, his third in about seven or eight years. And we, he had shared the, the, about the earlier two and, but he was, and he was trying to, to make up time. He was in the, actually in the women's aerobics uh, class uh, and had gone down. One of our um, staffers was there and she was giving him chest compressions. And then we had a, a, a member who's a nurse. She was giving him mouth to mouth. And so it didn't take much convincing to get our staffer to let me take over. And I did. And for about 20, 25 minutes, I worked on him. Well, we worked on him, the nurse and I both. And it wasn't like... Um, you know, in the movies uh, or TV where they just have a heart attack and boom, that's it. He was struggling to, to breathe and um, he was turning di all different colors that humans shouldn't be like green and purple and uh, all kinds of different colors. And we were talking to him, you know, and uh, trying to tell him to hold on. His name was Jim. And uh, after about 20 minutes, 25 minutes, maybe the EMTs got there. And this is before they, they had the, the shocking devices, you know, um, defibrillators there and uh he didn't make it and so that really you know he got he grew cold under my hands and that was an experience i'll never forget 
And uh, so I was, I was getting disillusioned to say the least about being in the fitness industry because we had this avalanche of people coming at us that needed all this help and we, we could only work with them, help them one-on-one. -on -one. So um, again, about this 95 to 2005 time period, I started learning about this um, phenomenon known as maternal imprinting. Now there's other names for it, but it's, it's what you were referring to earlier, you know, when we talked before, before we get started here, um, that period of time from conception to birth is a, has a huge effect on the baby's entire lifetime of, of health or not health. Uh, if the, if the mother is healthy and, you know, literally the baby is made out of her bones, muscle, and fat. And, uh, so if, they, if she's really, really healthy state, and again, from going from about puberty to about uh, when they start having them now about 27, 28 on average, 29, um, then it's a really great outcome for the, like 60 years because all of the organs and everything get are created optimally. Now, if she's way overweight, which we have in a lot of cases in our country here today, like if the baby's born over nine and a half pounds, gradually uh, problems start going up with, with that. And then if she, if the baby's born five and a half pounds or less, you know, going down from five and a half pounds, uh, there's problems uh, in the organs and that type of thing with that. And also the chances of uh, cancer, you know, heart disease, uh, diabetes, all of those things are affected either for the good or the bad by that. Well, the, the, what happened was God allowed me to have an opportunity to teach at one of the uh, universities here in our area. And um, I took it, took it, you know, took the opportunity. And uh, I had this idea, had this, had again, uh, learned of this maternal imprinting. And so when I went into it, I was teaching on a master's at the university and, you know, I, I shared my idea with some of the faculty over there and uh, they said, yeah, come on, uh, come on in. We're going to, uh, why don't you just go ahead and, and do a PhD around that? Why don't you create a, a college women's wellness program and create a PhD around it? And I said, yeah, that actually sounds like a great idea because if we can help these young women achieve optimal health, we're not just working with one, you know, the one of them, we're working with probably their future two children or maybe more, and also probably their husband, uh, hopefully husband. Um, so uh, that we, that's what I did. I, you know, I literally created a women's personal conditioning class. And then a, from there, there were a lot of sorority women that were in it. And uh, uh, they, they started asking me to come to their sororities and teach fitness. I used resistance bands and taught them all the, the nutrition, that type of thing. And I, um, I should go back a little bit. In 2007, which is again when this thing kind of started, I went to a leadership conference uh, there at the college for the university. That's kind of one of those um, weekend type things. And so there's all these different, you know, from all the different parts of the university um, leader leader types. And uh, went to sit down the first night at the, at the the banquet. And this is again one of those God's fingerprints things. I went to sit down. I came in early. To, and I, cause I always like to kind of banter back and forth with the speaker. Cause I, I do that some myself and we had a good time bantering back and forth and getting to know each other. But I, I got up and, and walked away and this, this table was like for 20, it's been one of those big round tables. When I came back, it was filled with 19 sorority women. Again, this is, this is none of them that I necessarily knew. It was just me and them. And going back to my undergraduate time, which would have been a long time before this, cause I was, in my fifties, when I started, was getting this PhD, 
uh, I had had a wrong impression of sorority women. I, you know, I thought that they were just socias and, and, you know, lightweights and not very smart. Well, they, they gave me a whole different education that night as they shared with me at the table. I realized that they have, uh, you know, good, good hearts and, and minds and, you know, they're well, they're, they have, they have good intentions, especially these leadership types. But I watched them, I watched their behavior and without, of course, them knowing I was, but the way they were eating, uh, about maybe half of them, maybe more were struggling with their weight, I noticed. And I watched their, their eating habits and I realized, man, there's, I could teach them a lot uh, to help them, you know, with, with that and, and help them to be much healthier. So that was part of it too. So again, only God could have made that situation happen because the, the audience was at least half male. And I ended up with, you know, 19 of these young women. So um, created the, the, the program. Uh, we were getting about two thirds of the women on campus that were taking personal conditioning. were taking women's personal conditioning was the one, one that I created. And so I didn't realize it, but as we went along, I, I coming from the fitness industry, I didn't realize that there were uh, woke considerations. And this was pretty, this was kind of back 2011, 2012. So it was, it was earlier than it was outside the campuses for the most part. So, but I won't go into detail on that, but just there was problems I realized because I'd created this women's, all women's class and they didn't want to, there wasn't, there was a desire for it not to, not for them to do anything where men weren't in the same class, where they were in different, different, different uh, places, even though there's, you know, women's universities and all that and colleges and all that. But um, even, and again, even though the women preferred it because two thirds of the, of the women that were taking personal conditioning were voluntarily taking the women's, even though they had the co-ed choice the, the whole, the whole time. So, and I taught that of course, like over the years and all that, but, um, and so the years went by, I taught it for five years and doing the PhD, I ended up interviewing 32 of them in depth. And then I'd had 10 focus groups, which were 10 of my classes. We did focus groups at the end. And I learned a tremendous amount, Jacob. Um, yes, their um, fitness was a challenge in, in, in college. It's hard, hard to get the time and the availability to do it, you know, their exercise. Yes, their nutrition was a, a huge challenge because, you know, on campus, there were just so many ways to mess up as far as eating bad. But this thing that they taught me about, and this is where we're going to come kind of bring this, this land, this plane, uh, this thing that, that I hadn't really heard, I'd heard of it, I guess, but didn't really know anything about it. Is, it was called hookup culture. They started making me aware of. Um, and so I realized, I mean, the, the tales of heartache and heartbreak, and, you know, it was one of those things where. I was, I had, I was stunned uh, by what they were going through. And I was stunned by, you know, the lack of relationships. Uh, the fact that the idea, whole idea was not to have a relationship, to have casual sex, but not have a relationship. So my, my PhD changed at that point from women's health and wellness to women's health and sexual wellness. And so um, I, I ended up, and at about the same time, there was enough um, acrimony, I guess you'd say, between me and the powers that be on the camp, and you know, different women and gender study, and the women's center director, and uh, the administration of the university, that they ended up canceling my classes. And even though they, even though they were, you know, bringing in the majority of the women that were taking it, and so 
you might say that I got canceled before I guess cancellation was was cool or, or really well known, you know, it was early 2017. But the, the good thing is, again, the, God had all this in, under control, because at the time it was, um, you know, it was disappointing and that type of thing, but it wasn't crushing, but like it would have been earlier in my career, my wife, uh, and I had, were at a point where that we had um, income streams from earlier in our both of our careers, where uh, we had the money, we didn't have to, I, I didn't need to work necessarily to, to make a, to make a living. So kind of looked around myself. And meanwhile, I was writing a book, it's, I'll, I'll hold it up. It's, it's called battles of the sexes. Let's see. There, there you go. Battles of the sexes. Anyway, uh, it came out in late 2018. And in the midst of it, it was start, it started out as, uh, you know, just your, your standard wellness, uh, exercise, nutrition, aimed at particularly at women, uh, college women, but also uh, college men to some degree. And I wrote it with an ex student of mine, um, who I had in class in 2007, who is now a nutritionist. And uh, so but it, but we, we turned it to be mostly about relationships young adult relationships and you know i thought we wrote it specifically for the the secular university situation and uh, i i thought you know it'd be a good good way to go out and speak on campuses and and um, kind of get the word out about how actually young women and young men how they how how sexuality works and really what that's what the book really get, gets at and all the biochemical basis to it and and I had known a lot about this before because I knew a lot about the biochemistry because I've been studying it since the early 90s. But on sexuality specifically, I was learning a lot uh, from it. And plus, I was doing research myself with regard to it. So the book came out in 2018. Um, Stanford, I mean, Stanford, um, uh, Princeton University, some of the folks up there read it. And now they were in a real special um special group uh, it's called the love and fidelity network and they were chartered like back in 2007 as well by by a young woman who was tired of the only alternative her, to have up there was was hookup culture so she chartered this uh, new club on campus called the love and fidelity network and from there from princeton all all the different all the rest of the universities in the ivy league and now notre dame now uh, now stanford and as other what we consider elite universities all have groups on their campuses. I went up there and spoke and they really understood and really understood the situation. I, they were Catholic for the most part. And I, I learned about kind of the Catholic understanding of, of, of marriage, you know, courtship, love and marriage and that type of thing. And, and learned a lot from that. And uh, um, again, spoke at the Catholic University from that, you know, off of that. And again, rubbed shoulders with a lot of these uh, Catholic folks. But, and again, it was what I was finding though, was your typical um, university situation, your typical secular university, which is what it was designed for. They didn't really want to know the facts, the facts and figures and the, the chemistry and that type of thing. Uh, I would have been able to work uh, heavily for them. They, they told me you'll be able to go speak across the country. If you'll just do this uh, so, social construction, if you'll just say this social construction of sex and gender and and I told them, well, there's some, there's some social influence to it, um, but it's mostly bio, biochemistry, biological. You know, that's my background and that type of thing. So again, I was exiled basically from the campus. Um, and again, continue to research it, continue to kind of be, to kind of be uh, 
uh, stymied to some degree because there weren't enough places that I wanted to be able to speak more places and get this word out because it was so helpful. It was so helpful to them, but also helped me within my marriage. So I, I knew how, how effective it was. And I, I'd had challenges in this area, you know, earlier in my life. So I wish I would have known what then what I know now. But I ended up uh, realizing that sexual integrity really is what it all comes down to as far as the key to humanity. I know that sounds kind of hyperbolic, but sexual integrity between a man and a woman Again, if you go into the science, you're going to the straight science, which is what I did, the hard, hard science, along with some social science, but mostly the hard science. Um, the scientists uh, that have studied all of this for the last 20, 30 years would tell you that the key to human development was when men and, men and women um, started pair bonding and started, the man started uh, provisioning the, 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 the woman and allowed her to, you know, be pregnant and because it's... It, I won't get too far in the details right now, but that was, that was, that was a key, the key development. And, uh, and it, it took sexual integrity because the, 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 on the female side of it, there's something called female choice. And so generally in most species, including ours, the female has the final decision, unless there's some kind of a violent, you know, se sexual violence, the female calls the shot on, on sexuality. And so she's not only making a decision from, genes and looks and that type of thing but but also from will this guy you know once i once i have a baby will he stay with me and and provide for me and that type of thing and because earlier in our history it hadn't been so much that way it had been more like multiple females and one one male on the other side of it uh on the male side of it is can i trust this this uh, woman you know paternity certain certainty is what it's called can i trust this woman to um, only be, only, you know, be with me and that type of thing is this baby that she's pregnant with really mine. So the sexual integrity element, you know, and nowadays I would, I would define it as no extramarital sex. And that, especially, you know, people think premarital, that's probably the, the biggest challenge, but, um, that's really what humanity, how humanity is developed. And from there, um, human brains, uh, triple in size because the, the woman was getting the kind of nutrition, the nutrition surplus that she needed for the baby's brains to develop bigger and bigger and bigger. Uh, and again, there's a whole story to that, but um, you could say, I guess, that our civilization was built on, on marriage. And, and so I realized that, and I thought to myself, well, this is such a key thing, the sexual integrity thing. So I just searched out of the blue one day, I searched you know, sexual integrity, and I well, guess, guess how many uh, uh, responses I found? How many how many places were dealing with sexual sexual integrity? Well, on on Google or where did you do the search at? Google. Well, most searches on Google come back with a large number, um, so I'm not sure. <laughs> two. There was two. only two. Yeah. <laughs> and so, yeah, that shocked me. But, you know. Very few things you could put in there, and you would only find two, two, uh, two hits. Um, so one of them was an, an one of the large pro-life entities, and so I'm getting to how I got with the pro-life. Um, okay. Um, and I just emailed them. I, I said, you know, so you guys have a, a sexual integrity program, huh? I said, I, I, I said, you're uh, that is hard to find uh, on the internet, and they said, yeah, yeah, we're, we we definitely that's one of our big our big programs or it has been in the past. And I said, well, I'm, then, they, then they said, 
who told you to who told you to contact us and i said well nobody told me to contact you i just it's what i've been studying the last several years and, and uh come down to the fact that it's the key it's the key to well just about everything as far as good relationships and, and, and a good society and so they said you know what uh we were just in process we just were meeting about um renewing uh updating creating a new sexual integrity program because we've had this one that we've done over the years in the past and we, we were just in the process and discussing how we wanted to uh create a new one an updated one and they so they said you calling you getting a hold of us right now they said i wonder if god is is in on that and i said i wonder that too so so anyway uh, one thing led to another from there and I, I ended up speaking at their conference recently and um uh I learned all I learned about this pro-life uh, movement. I, I started meeting people from pregnant there at the conference, obviously from the pregnancy centers. And I learned about, again, this, I would call it the most noble of causes. So, and what's been interesting is that I've got all this knowledge that God's given me really to create a, God's allowed me to learn to create an educational program. And what I'm finding is that um i think it's very very needed you know there's this problem out there of females don't understand males males don't understand females and as far as sexuality and they don't understand each other themselves either so and there's it's it's a complex um it's a complex complex subject and they're getting so much uh false information from the internet you know from porn from you know you name it so man, i'm gonna stop there does that make sense um, it does. And it's sort of, yeah. So I guess I think we should transition into some of the, some of the work that you've done in this space after being brought in, in after being brought into this pro-life area. Mm -hmm. Um, so some of the questions, one of the questions I wanted to ask you, um, that we had discussed before, um, before the podcast was, so, so can you speak to the relationship between a woman being unmarried and how that impacts um, her decision of perhaps choosing abortion um, from an unplanned pregnancy? Yes, I can. And again, this is statistics that probably would be familiar to your audience and probably you, but uh, of those who choose to get abortions, 85% um, are unmarried. And 72% of those are between ages 15 and 20, 29, 60% are low income. So we're looking at uh, primarily a young, again, 15 to 29 year old, uh, unmarried and from, you know, lower uh, circumstances as far, as far as their incomes go. So um, the projection before maybe this Roe versus Wade situation that we're thankfully in now was that you know, there would be 35% of all women in, in their reproductive lifetime that would end up getting an abortion. So it, yeah, it's I, the circumstances that I think that lead to abortion most often are being young and unmarried and probably poor along, along with that. So if there, if there's things that we can do to help the unmarried part and the, and, you know, especially at a young age, getting pregnant, uh, you know, out of wedlock, I think that we can do uh, a lot about the abortion situation. One of my friends who's a, an authority in this has his own, uh, I guess you say initiative. Uh, he says, we don't have a, 
an abortion problem in this country, we have a marriage problem because if you, if you have more of them getting married, if you have more young women getting married, you're probably going to see less abortion just from the from the get go. And really, that's you know that's uh, where I'm coming from now is to try to educate in a way along the lines of sexual integrity. Um, you know, not, not just sex ed, but sexual integrity ed, uh, where young women, especially because they end up, end up with the situation, but young men as well, where they, where they learn how, again, they really work, what makes them, what drives them, their impulses, uh, these natural, uh, things that their biochemistry is telling them to do and help them to better self-manage. Hmm. That's interesting. Yeah. Young poor and unmarried as being the primary statistics of those who are, would you say that those are the women who are seeking abortions or those that's the highest percentage of women who are having abortions? Or maybe those are, maybe those numbers match. Both. I would both. say both yeah. because, you know, again, I'm just now I'm late to this party, so to speak. Uh, and I, I'm learning a lot as I'm going, but in, with my it, with regard to my students and that type of thing that those are the kind of circumstances that that i saw them looking for um that solution with i had a student way back when that asked me if i would uh, recommend her for a job because she needed the, the money to be able to get an abortion that was a heartbreaking hmm. you know heartbreaking situation so um her and this is this is a younger student. Uh, she said, "My grandparents will kick me out of the house if 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 I end up being pregnant and that type of thing." So, man, talk about a quandary, you know. <laughs> but but yeah, no, I, I think it's a uh, it's it usually some kind of duress. I think that puts women, young women, into the this spot. And uh, Vicky Thorne, I don't know if are you familiar with Vicky Thorne and her work? I am. Yeah, she uh, was the founder of Rachel's Vineyard. Mm -hmm. which is the uh, post-abortion healing group. And she just passed away, I believe, I want to say like two months ago. On Easter. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, again, another another life and another person. I, I, I Unfortunately, I never got to meet her. Um, but I became aware of her because of a mutual friend, uh, Joan Batista. And jo actually, Joan's really been a huge educator on, for me on the whole thing. But Vicki Thorne's life who I had no idea she was out there teaching the way she had for the decades and, and what she was teaching, but she was teaching things very similar to what, you know, what my knowledge base is. So um, my PhD is around it. And so that maybe it goes a little bit deeper uh, type of thing, but she had realized what I realize now that there's a huge need for this um, both for young people and also people who loved young people, as far as like their parents and, uh, their, their, uh, pastors and, and, uh, you know, the, the fathers and in, in, in the Catholic church, uh, there's a lot of folks that need this knowledge and could use this knowledge, but they don't have it. And, and there, and people don't, are, they shy away from it because it's a tough subject, especially in, in the, in the Christian church to deal with, because there's so much, seems like there's so much stigma to it, but when you, when you leave it open, um, you know, again, you have the people that are teaching them the, the, the pornography folks and uh you know the, the sex, sex uh, trade folks and, and all of that type of thing so um yeah and, and again the thing that really spoke to me and really got my attention was when i realized i'd done all the secular research for the book and going into it i had no um christian 
you know, over overlay to it at all. I wasn't looking for anything, you know, Christian wise. In fact, I was, I was expecting it to, you know, come out as being, uh, not, not saying that, that monogamy was best for humans and, uh, you know, polyamory might be something that was, you know, natural for us that we had a natural inclination towards that. But I was really pleased by just a straight and honest, uh, scientific assessment of it that it is very clear in 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 the research that it's it's really um optimal on on many many all really different levels for humans to to get married and 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 stay married the rest of their life so that's where i ended up coming to scientifically and that's what again that's what i have presented along the way and uh, i'm finding people finally that are interested in knowing about that one of the um, in, in a previous podcast, I was talking with this gentleman, uh, Jarrell Godsey, mm-hmm. and we were talking about the number one cause um, for a woman for a woman who is looking to get an abortion. She's maybe not abortion uh, determined, but she, maybe she's abortion minded or mm-hmm. she's on the fence leaning towards getting an abortion. And the number one um, uh, um reason or or factor for her to change her direction and choose life was another person whether that be the boyfriend a person that she talks to at a pregnancy clinic maybe a parent or a pastor or a neighbor mm-hmm. a number you know, the number one cited it seemed like the number one reason for her to you know for her to change her mind was another person and usually that meant someone giving her respect and valuing her and listening to her and building up relationship and essentially helping, you know, provide her the support and hope that she needed. Mm-hmm. And, and we've also on the flip side, the number one way that someone might choose abortion in that same scenario or to get reinforced to choose abortion seems to also be another person, whether it be, you know, the other person saying, you know, I'll support, I'll support you in whatever decision or choice you make, which is a way of saying, I'll support you if you have an abortion, uh, or if the other person happens to work at a Planned Parenthood abortion clinic. Um, so it seems like the number one factor for, for that woman who is young, poor, unmarried, and if she happens to be leaning towards getting an abortion, you know, whether she does or doesn't, seems to be the person that she talks to. And, the, and I think the boyfriend or the father of this unplanned pregnancy is one of the most, yeah, one of the most clear voices that will have a, a clear impact um, on her. What are your thoughts as someone who studied this? And what are your thoughts on that concept of the other person's voice and, and how that impacts this young woman? I completely agree. I couldn't com- agree any, any more okay. uh, with it. And, and that, you know, again, you really point out jacob i think an important uh, element here just give it a few st- stats um okay i'm gonna look at them uh so that make sure i don't get them right but i mean to get, get them wrong i mean but in 1960 there was three times more 20 to 29 year olds married okay so that again that takes mm. care of your takes care of your uh, other voice there to, uh, to a large part in 1960 75 percent of 18 older 18 years old and older were married. So it's 75% of 18 year olds and older. And of course, wow. going along, yeah, going along with that in 1960, 
5% overall of our, you know, people, the babies that were being born, 5% were born out of wedlock. And now it's overall 40%. And with yeah. the, some of the ethnic groups, you know, it reaches up into the 80, 80% and, and between 40 and, and 80. So, um, it's, yeah. it seems like between young, poor, unmarried and that unmarried group who has a pregnancy, uh, who, who is pregnant going from 5% to 40%, it feels like stability has been shaken. Like I feel like the stability, you know, the, the house that they're, that they're living on, it, you know, that stability of, um, of the father of the situation, you know, the, the, the amount of stability from a boyfriend compared to a husband is, yeah, I, I don't know how to compare those two, but it feels like the husband would be, um, 95% rock while the boyfriend would be 5% rock. Right. Something like that. Yes. No, that's you're totally, totally correct. And that's a huge part of our problem is that change in norm, you know, from what is that 60 years ago? Uh, again, I, yeah. I'm a, I'm a child of the 50s, started, was born in the 50s. And so I was a child during that time period, uh, the early 60s. Okay. And I can just tell you that nobody that I knew of my friends had, had parents that were divorced. And so each, all of us, it was unthinkable really for us to be in a situation where our, both of our parents weren't, well, the dad was usually working, you know, during the day and, and somewhere else. And the, the mom was mostly moms were, were home then. So yeah, it was a huge stability uh, advantage and a huge, I think, advantage to the, to the mothers, because there was no question that the, the dads, uh, their whole life was about providing for the family. And as our norms have changed, as, as the pill was about that time, the, the pill, you know, was, was invented and came into society. And then again, the abortion question by the, by the time I graduated from high school in 1973, uh, Roe versus Wade, you know, was decided. And I mean, one thing after another, after another has been, has led us down the pathway to where we are now. Wow. Yeah. And, did you, did you graduate in May of 73 or April? It was actually, I think, uh, June of okay. 73. Yeah. So again, we heard about it, you know, uh, but we didn't understand the, the, the gravity, you know, of it and that type of thing. But and I, I'm a, per, I'm a child of that whole sexual revolution. And so I saw it come about and I I'll say that I was damaged. I, I, I didn't, uh, I got involved in it and did things that I would, would never do now but I was just kind of born into it, you know, to, to some degree and, and not to try to make an excuse, but I've, the things I've learned in my lifetime, um, make me look back and think, well, man, that was really a bad, a bad for the United States. Well, bad for the world basically. So, um, and, but the other thing is one thing I was going to mention, we always take a, we always think historically that, you know, history happens linearly, linearly, in a linear, linear, linear fashion, if I can get it out. Okay. Um, but actually, you know, uh, I taught history for part of my career and actually it's a cyclical situation because, uh, you know, going back to the, the beginning of Christianity in the Roman empire for about the th first 300 years, uh, they were living in a real sexualized uh, society there in Rome. And then they had their effect because one of the hallmarks of Christianity is something, you know, and everybody probably listening, you know, major hallmark was, was sexual purity or, or sexual integrity, as I'm calling it now. And then from, so about 380, 
when it was declared to be the religion, you know, of the empire on to about 1660, there was pretty much a kind of a gradual uh, rising sexual integrity uh, society, I guess you'd say. About 1660 to 1800, it went the other way and became more of a sexual anarchy and more of a sexualized situation there, in the, in, mostly in the 1700s with, mm. the, you know, with the Enlightenment and kind of the thinking that went along with that. Then from about 1800 to about 1920, uh, the Victorian era, era, it swung back to uh, um, more of a sexual integrity and more, more of a conservative uh, situation. About 1920, it started, it went back, started going back the other way. And again, by the seventies and on, on forward from there, it's, it's really, you know, it is what it is today, but I guess what I'm saying is uh, we're due, I think for it to swing back in the other direction. Matter of fact, it is swinging back already. There was something I was going to mention. Um, um, okay. Cupid is, is a dating site and starting in 2016, they, they were polling their, uh, surveying their, their users, their, their, their customers from about two, 2006 forward. And they found that all the way up to 2016, uh, everything is going in a more sexualized direction. Uh, but starting in 2016, especially with, with women, it started going the other way as far as uh, women preferring to not have, you know, hooking up and preferring to find uh, committed romantic relationships and that type of thing. So my argument would be that we're, we're the wave is, is starting to go the other way. And, it, you know, it takes a while for it, for it to, uh, to get going in the other direction than to have its effect. But I think we're, we're uh, in, in a, um, a great awakening, another great awakening going the direction. I think that you and I would, would be uh, happy to see it go. Interesting. Yeah. So that's, uh, so the, the, the pendulum is, yeah. In that transition stage from one direction to the other. Hmm. And this Roe versus Wade uh, possible overturn may be part of that, you know, because again, there's folks now that I'm aware of it, that have been working their bottoms off, you know, for decades on this and never giving up. And yeah, um, I think we're finally, we're seeing the fruit of it, but I think the rest of society is also seeing thing. A lot of things, you know, your, your parents at the school board meeting, you're uh, not liking all of the stuff going on from, from K to five, you know, all the comprehensive, comprehensive sexuality, education, all that, the, the types of things they're trying to teach the young people and the reaction that we're seeing. I think, I think we're seeing a, a positive backlash to it. Interesting. Yeah. And it, it feels like, yeah, it just feels like when it comes to the, the discourse in our country, the, um, it feels like there's just some um, layers upon layers of false beliefs and arguments and two different positions on, on the moral good versus evil. And like, there just seems like there's so much going on right now. And, um, and it feels like some of the, some of the facades, um, like, you know, like the, like the phrase pro-choice sounds, sounds positive, but I, I heard recently that Planned Parenthood is changing their phrase to now pro-abortion, you know, making it less ambiguous, less um, manipulative and more matter of fact, um, and not trying to necessarily hide the abortion word as much as when they, you know, in the past, they, and they still hide it quite a bit. While talking about abortion, they will often talk about everything but abortion, um, and but it feels like it feels like some of the the layers of facade are, you know, the light is being shine, you know, it's, they're being exposed for what they really are, and I feel like 
the facades are becoming less, um, yeah, less manipulative possibly. And people are able to maybe see, see what something really is. Hopefully. I, mean, I feel like that's, maybe that's part of this part of that pendulum swinging back is that the, the false beliefs have less power and they're simply being, yeah, people can see what it really is. That's my feeling too. Yes. And I mean, it's gone to such an extreme now with, you know, the Supreme Court justice not being able to define what a, what a woman was and claiming she's not a biologist. And then there's somebody <laughs> the other day that what, what yeah. was the thing that they said? Uh, it was something that, oh yeah, that a man can have a, can give birth to a, to a baby. Yeah, and, yeah. She was asked, um, do you know what a, do you know what a woman is? And she says something like a woman can, everyone can identify for themselves. And then yes. was asked, um, can a man become pregnant? And she said, yes. <laughs> right. And that's the kind of thing when I was on campus that I got canceled for, because, you know, I, I said, there's a physiological reality here that you're, yeah, you'd have to teach these, these students. And we can't, we can't be a, a higher education uh, institution and not be teaching the truth, the scientific truth. So yeah, that's what I, mean, I if there's ever a false belief. I mean, you know, the lie of lies, the false belief of false beliefs is that a man can become pregnant. Like that just, it, it holds no water. <laughs> it, it's, it's the opposite of truth. It's um, the opposite of facts. Um, and, but yet it's still being like, like it, it, it's being held as a belief or and it's being taught as a thing. And so what does that say about higher education, except for the fact that it's, I mean, how would you define education that teaches, obviously, false beliefs? <laughs> That's exactly why, again, I wasn't, when, they, when I got canceled, I wasn't too disappointed because I couldn't stay there and, and, and go along with the, the mm. party line anyway. Yeah, and, and I, would do, I would define it as lower education because it's, yeah. it's, it's false. And I was just having a discussion with somebody the other day that has a son that's at one of the elite elite universities and he was saying how he was you know saying how good it is and that type of thing and and how, how much his son was had learned about this subject that i won't bring up right now um but i told him i said you know it isn't so much that your son's wrong about all this he's being but he's being taught bald-faced lies and and so the responsibility is these professors that they they know better but they're teaching ideology and, and not, not the facts. The, the, it's wishful thinking. And it's, well, again, we can get buried in, yeah, in yeah, probably don't need to, but, but no, I, I'm, I'm with you totally. And, and yeah. that's why I think this actually, you know, the scientifically and evidence-based uh, information and knowledge that I'm trying to share is so important because there's so much of the other that's being taught. So, yeah, so that's, yeah. So let's see. So when it comes to the, um, the future of, you know, discussions on this, where, where do you think we should be going? I think we should be going with, with the science because, uh, again, a lot of us are, are burnt by that because of the experience we've had, you know, with the virus and, and all the different, uh, scientific explanation given, given for that and what to do about it. But there, there actually is a, a true science on, on these uh, subjects we're, we're talking about here, sexuality and, you know, whether or not marriage is, is the optimal um, form of relationship, you know, uh, for, for humans. There's, there's science on it. And, and not only, you know, 
not only a social science, there's a lot of that, but there's also natural science. And also, again, how the brain, the anatomy of the brain of the, of the male versus the female, the, the, the hormonal chemistry of the two in comparison to each other, um, and just and what being what being in a relationship and what what being engaged, what ma being married does to like a male, especially what the, what does to their biochemistry. Uh, and I'll just give you a hint. It's it's uh, going in the right direction. It's, it's lowering testosterone. So um, there's just a ton. There's a ton of great uh, science, especially in the last 10 or so years, 10 or 15 years that uh, we've learned about how it all works. And again, like, like I said earlier, in my own case, it helped me to uh, understand myself and, and my wife and, and, and any other women and men and uh, be able to read the situation, you know, biochemically by, of, of what's what's going on. And and that type of thing. So it's, it, it's very empowering to use the word that I try to avoid a lot of times, but it's very empowering to have this knowledge. Um, you know, one, one little example, not little, actually a huge example is vasopressin. Have you heard of vasopressin? I haven't. What is, what is, what is that? Well, it's the, it's the, well, it does other things in the body. It has to do with blood pressure and that type of thing and, and water uh, levels in the, in the, in the blood and that type of thing. But uh, it's other major real, really uh, recently discovered function is to, it's the male bonding. It's the main male bonding, uh, hormone and, and neurotransmitter. So, and, and just to give your folks that are watching this a hint, uh, it's the reason it, the way it works compared to oxytocin, which is the main female bonding, uh, neurotransmitter and hormone. The way the two work differently is the reason that males so oftentimes are able to, to, to take part in a hookup, you know, take part in a sexual, a sexual encounter, and then walk away from it without having much of a you know, feeling about it, much of a, and beyond kind of the neck to the next one, you know, and how the, because the reason that the female is thinking is feeling like I need to, you know, I want to see this guy tomorrow morning, you know, I want, I want to have breakfast with him or whatever, and, and hoping that'll become a relationship. What it turns out that vasopressin, uh, in the presence of continuous sexual, uh, you know, having intercourse, just soon after you meet somebody and that type of thing, the way that that uh, hookup culture works a lot of times, it it the vasopressin um, in in the brain gets washed out by that by that situation, and it's never in the brain of the male long enough to form receptors. Um, if on the other hand, you, uh, the couple does the old school, um, you know, meet each other, start dating, uh, n no sex, you know, but they're around each other a lot. He's attracted to her, you know, and, and eventually you know, they get engaged and eventually they get married and no sex, is, no sexual intercourse has occurred. Uh, then those vasopressin receptors all along the way there, and they say it's several months, but those vasopressin some receptors have time because there's vasopressin in the brain long enough to form and and when that happens then the vasopressin when they're together at some point locks there's a lock there and that's when he bonds with her he falls in love in other words that way she may have been in love long long before that because of the way that oxytocin works but the old school um holding man, men off from having sex that they may want to have desperately because their, their brains are the way they are and their, their, their chemistry, their body, you know, men have on average seven to eight times more testosterone than women. And some men have up to 183 times more testosterone than, than women do. So 
holding him off is the way that a woman can, can if, if she is interested in him for long term, get him to actually fall in love. Having sex with him, which is kind of the, an urban tale that a lot of them are told. You know, I had some of them tell me, my, my parents, my dad told me I had to have sex these days in order to have a guy fall in love with me. And the other one, another one had a, her mother tell her, tell her that it's totally wrong. And then again, what I found, Jacob, is that the old school approach, you know, it's not a mystery. When I, knowing what I know, why the, in 1960, we had the stats we did then and why we have what we got now. Um, the old school approach is the one that's effective, especially from the female side of, of the equation. Females are their own worst enemy if they're promiscuous. Hmm. I know that that won't be popular news with some people because they want to say that males and females are exactly the same. And, you know, if a female is being oppressed, if she isn't sexually as aggressive as, as a male, but there's a small percentage that seem to be because of like uh, hormone exposure before birth. Once again, that important time before, before birth, um, they come out with brains that are more similar to the, to, to males. And some of them have higher, higher uh, testosterone levels. Uh, none of it, none of them are close to males, but they end up being sexually aggressive. There's about 15% maybe that are like that, but you know, about, you got about 90% of males that are, that are sexually aggressive that way. And the top, by the way, the top 20% of males in, in intelligence, um, are the ones that are, uh, get, get the, get the importance of sexual integrity. They want to bond. They, they want to find a, a, a woman, you know? And so it's an interesting, um, interesting correlation there and there's correlations across species too the more intelligent species um on average are are the, are the monogamous ones so there's a whole other story on another time we could go into with all of that but um knowing yeah. these kind of things are very important i think for young people well everybody even but for, for young people because it takes away a lot of the false things that they're being taught at university and elsewhere uh, about the way sex should be, um, you know, uh, participated in. Yeah. And it seems like there's a lot of what you're essentially citing seems to promote and support, uh, sexual integrity and true sexual health, um, for the lifetime, um, of some, you know, for someone's life more so than in the short term. Um, what are your thoughts on, um, well, one of, one of the things that, is taking place is uh, Planned Parenthood or the, you know, sexual education at the low, at the, some of the youngest levels of our grade school program. Um, and some of the topics of like um, promoting masturbation and promoting things along those lines as being um, healthy. Um, and so what are your thoughts on you know, some of these, some of these topics being brought to young children, as well as what are your thoughts on some of these topics being promoted as healthy? Yeah, what are your thoughts on those things? Uh, great question. And again, uh, I would classify them as abusive, because, because really, there's an age appropriate uh, level of understanding that children should get about how relationships are formed. And then, you know, again, it's one of those things that at a young age, I don't think they have any, any need, you know, in the grade school years to know anything about sexuality. And it's one of those things where they're, they're trying to kind of corrupt them at a young age. And one of the, one of the uh, 
stats that people are listening to should know uh, is that as far as girls and women, the, the earlier they, they have, they experience arousal, the, the more likely that they'll have a, uh, an overt sociosexual uh, attitude, meaning that they'll be more uh, prone towards promiscuity. So um, it's, it, it really is harmful to, especially to, on the girl side of it, to be exposed to sexual um, information and, you know, uh, images and, and that type of thing before they're, they're ready for it. Now, on the other side of it, I would say, you know, again, at, at certain ages, because of what I was saying earlier, if, if we don't teach them, and I would call it more of a sexual integrity education is what I would like to see, see taught. Um, but if we don't teach how it works, then it's, it becomes harmful at a certain age. Like I'm talking, I'm talking like high school, uh, definitely college, because in college, again, the opportunities are everywhere. And another stat for you, you know, again, one thing that drove me crazy when I was teaching at the college was uh, they were very much against rape culture. And I'm, I was right in there with them. I'm totally against rape culture, but 80% of rapes, 80% of rapes and sexual assaults occur during a hookup. So, uh, and 64% of them uh, um, have, have alcohol involved. So mm. think about those stats and then, but they're all four, they're all for hooking up and the message that they gave to the to the incoming freshman you know at orientation was here's your condoms and here you know here's how you can get fixed if you have std sti over here at the the, the health center and and the message was that you're going to be you're going to be sexually active and you know you're kind of weird if you're if you're not and at the same time the 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 other on the other hand on the hypocritical other hand uh oh you know uh we, we can't have any kind of, you know, um, sexual assaults, or, or sexual rape or that. Type. We've got this, you know, epidemic of rape and that type of thing. It's like you're enabling it. You're giving the message for them to go out and be in these circumstances where they get drunk out of their minds. And then, you know, uh, again, 80 percent of the time when, when there is uh, an offense, it's within within a hookup situation. It isn't just somebody jumping out from behind the bush like you, like you th you think you know of rape and that type kind of thing. So, hmm. you see what I mean? I mean, it's 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 a paradox. It's a oxymoron, basically. You know, yeah, uh, it makes a lot of sense that the hookup culture with alcohol involved, like that, that logically makes sense that that would be the finding, that that would be the the majority um, of abusive sexual relationship, sexual activities take take place in that in that shallow yeah and um yeah under the influence of alcohol like that makes sense that that would those would be factors yeah and and male arousal you know again this is something else i, I teach and and it's it's an amazing uh phenomenon i guess you'd say but a male a young male can be one whole different per kind of person ethically and and kind of his whole demeanor but you get him aroused and again if we if we're able to talk in the future i can share the the actual, you know, findings from these different studies and, and, and a whole lot more, but okay. Um, yeah, it, it's just uh, amazing how much different they can be uh, when they're aroused. And also if you throw alcohol in, into the, into the mix and that that's where sex, uh, male sexual aggression really, really, really kind of gets um, dangerous, I guess you'd say. Okay. Not that, not that it isn't in other situations, but you were like, you were saying earlier, the vast majority would fit into that. So when it comes to what you've learned, um, I want to try and make 
uh, try and bring this back to, let's say part of our audience uh, would be executive directors of pregnancy clinics listening to this podcast. Mm -hmm. And with the average pregnancy clinic having counselors or, or client advocates who are talking to women and men who are experiencing an unplanned pregnancy you know, decision, whether it's the, the mom or the dad in the situation. And uh, when it comes to, you know, when it comes to that, when it comes to these clients coming in, based on your study and your, what you've learned, what advice or thoughts would you like to share with those client advocates who are trying to, you know, trying to build relationships with those clients, trying to um, give them the truth um, while supporting them, showing empathy, but yet still trying to deliver this, these, these statements of truth that they need to hear so that they can make a decision that they're going to appreciate for decades and not just for months? Now, that's another great question. Uh, and that would be my desire. Now that I've recently learned about this whole world and, and kind of what's going on with it, and again, the, the most the noblest of causes, I would call it, I would love to be able to um, meet with these staffs and teach give them uh, the knowledge that I have. And so they'd be able to use that as a quote unquote weapon, you know, in, in, in the um, work tool. Their, uh, yeah, <laughs> that, that, that's a better, better way to put it tool. Yeah. Um, in their, in their working with these young women and, you know, help these young women to understand themselves and help them to understand the guys, you know, that are dealing with them. If there, if there is a pregnancy already, help them to understand the young man that's the father. And, uh, Again, I, I wholeheartedly support yours and the, the pregnancy yeah. uh, center movement uh, as far as not attaching, you know, any kind of good judgment or guilt or anything like that. And, uh, and that was Vicki Thorne's uh, approach from what I understand. And I think that's so important um, and really kind of ascribing the, the probably the where the responsibility for this lies in them not really knowing, you know, the, the knowledge, you know, it says in the Bible, you know, my, my people perish for, for lack of knowledge. And I think that there's a lot of perishing for knowledge um, in, in this, in this, in this subject and, and then helping them, you know, hopefully they go ahead and have the, have the baby and then helping them to be in better prepared for the next time they're in a situation um, where, where there's temptation and, and where it seems like, uh, you know, having sex would be the thing to do if you're, if you're not married. And, and understanding again, especially how the guys work, where you know they're not going to necessarily they're not going to usually fall in love with you if you have sex with them. It's going to be the opposite situation. And I, I, I had a young woman I was working with, I was working with sororities, and I didn't know she, she. I was telling her, I was sharing this science with her. I didn't know she was putting it out on TikTok, and but she put out a, a post on on how how men really fall in love, and it was along the lines of what we're talking about, and it got three point six million views and 600,000 likes and a bunch of hate as well. But, but it was like, particularly women, you know, were very interested. And there were some of the guys that came on there in, in their comments. And I think it had 6,000 comments, if I didn't say that, um, very hot topic, but, uh, and they would, they would say, the guys would say, yeah, that actually is how it works with, with us. That, that's exactly how, how it works. You know, if, so, um, it's one of those things where and there's the vasopressin, you know, stuff we were talking about earlier. Um, it's one of those things where these days, these young people, they don't know how it works and, and they're not to blame for that. 
and the society isn't helping and our culture isn't helping them by having the norms like they had back in the 1960s to where um you know you're you learn not to do that and also if it did happen if a, a woman became pregnant then the expectation was that for the man to marry her and you know all of that so um so again the 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 the, the society itself and much higher level of christianity at that point there were guardrails that, at that time for everybody but especially for the the young woman that was involved in it where where she wasn't kind of left holding the bag and she wasn't left um with just the choice in her mind of abortion was the only way was the only way out of it yeah and and i, th I think I, I think as a pro-life group you know especially pregnancy clinics are you know, we, we're not, we're not here to judge women. We're here to offer them uh, support and heal, you know, point them into a pathway of finding healing and restoration. Um, and, and I feel like that's what God's called people to do is to provide help and care to those who are willing to accept it. Yeah. Um, and one of the, the, one of the verses that I feel like sort of reinforces this whole work is um uh james 5 16 which 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 reads um therefore confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed the prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective so that first part just says yeah confess your sins to another meaning like you know i've messed up here i'm you know i need help here and then that person praying is part of that healing process um and then, yeah, so essentially like that, it's a very simple recipe, but yet also very hard to obtain. It's easy to avoid sharing what, you know, sharing mistakes, sharing the darker corners of our closets. And, and so, but at the same time, that's the recipe for healing is to expose those, those strongholds or expose those dark corners in our closet. Yes. I couldn't agree with you more there either. Um, and I think there's just, the other thing I've learned recently after, you know, becoming a part of this whole thing and, and, and uh, realizing that God's will for my life is my calling is really, I think, I think here is, is that uh, there's so much guilt. Uh, and this is some of Vicki Thorne's work as well. So much guilt, you know, from a woman who's had a, had an abortion and um, it's, it's destructive. It's, it's soul destroying, I, I believe to so many of them. And um that's something, I mean, there, there needs to be compassion for, of course, starting with the baby, but, uh, and, and, and the mother who, you know, has gone through it. And then also the, there's a lot of poor fathers in, in, in the situation that, you know, they're affected as well. Um, so everybody involved, I think that that's a great verse for, for everybody involved. And, and, uh, you know, the bottom line, I mean, it's, it's Jesus, that was Jesus's approach is, is, he came to, you know, give himself, you know, for, for, for the world. And he came to, uh, show the ultimate in compassion and, 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 uh, and he did. So, you know, our reflection of him is just what you're talking about there and every, everything, every tool that's, that's a, a much better, uh, term than I was using, uh, every tool that we can put into play to help this not be something that becomes part of young women's and then the young man that's also you know uh, the father um and the family uh just and if it does happen then to make the best out of that situation and have compassion where that baby has a chance uh, 
as you said earlier, you know, it a lot oftentimes comes down to, does somebody say something encouraging to her? Is somebody, does she perceive that there's people backing her up or does she perceive that uh, she's by herself? And especially, you know, if, if the, if the guy, her, her guy is uh, not, not uh, with her, you know, on, on, on having yeah. a baby. Yeah. Each, I think each voice that she hears gets to be um, either speak support and hope and care or can speak um, can essentially can speak uh, death and destruction. And, and so the, you know, the, the voice that she hears will be on one side or the other of, you know, whether, you know, one side of the table or on the other side of the table and, and that's going to impact her, you know, whether or not she thinks she has what it takes to continue on or to end this pregnancy. Um, and, um, and, and thinking about like, you know, we're not called to be the judge. So like when Jesus was on the cross and he was, he was being, um, well, abused, he was being destroyed. He was being, uh, just beaten down and killed. And what, and what he said was father, forgive them for they don't know what they do. I mean, mm-hmm. that's like the, you know, uh, just the ultimate, ultimate example of compassion and kindness and seeing the humanity of those people who were destroying him or who were attacking and, and just, you know, belittling him while also physically, um, you know, tearing him up. And, and so I feel like, you know, that's like the ultimate example of compassion and kindness in the midst of a hard situation. So when someone says, how can we choose, you know, how can you tell someone to choose life after they have just gone through the, the most horrific situation? Um, you know, pointing to Jesus, I think, you know, his situation was the most horrific, and yet he still showed, he looked at someone's humanity, even those people, you know, he didn't just mark them as the enemy and, and say something to mark them as the opposition. He actually was showing love and kindness even to the, to the enemy that he had at that time. Yes. Um, and so, and, and obviously some situations are obviously really hard, like in rape and incest and, and situations are also hard when someone doesn't have a stable marriage at home they have, you know, it's a hookup culture situation. There's no stability at home. It's mostly sand. There's nothing to stand on, but in all those situations, you know, that the answer is, well, Jesus, <laughs> the answer is Jesus as a, as finding foundation, as finding um, the wherewithal to finding care. And, and if we all speak Jesus in other people's lives, then, you know, it all becomes, well, becomes better. Um, what would you, yeah, it's, it's, it seems like, it seems like a simple word just to say Jesus is the answer, but honestly, I don't, I, I, I don't see anything else being the answer. No, I agree. I agree. Um, you know, Jesus is the answer to all of life's most important questions and, and most important challenges. And he, in my experience, you know, he's, he is a salve that the only salve, so to speak, that can, that can, um, help some of the hurts that humans have and, and that longing to have a relationship with God, that's, that's innate in us, you know, it has been since the going back to the fall and, and uh, that, that missing God shaped hole, so to speak. And, and, you know, I've, I've talked about the knowledge that, that I've learned being, being helpful to, as far as self-management, but beyond that, 
um, it's a helpful tool. But beyond that, having a relationship with Jesus Christ is the ultimate tool, the ultimate, uh, the ultimate step to success in all yeah. levels, all areas of this life. And, and it makes everything else work, you know, all these other things, you know, people are changed so, so radically by going from a, a, a non believing in Jesus life and, and non living for Jesus life to, to living for Jesus, believing and living for Jesus. And again, it makes understanding, you know, the, the things we're talking about as far as, uh, the moral things and, 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 uh, the, the way to conduct yourself in this life and the way not to take advantage of the, of somebody from the other sex and, and, uh, yeah. not to always be serving yourself and not, not, you know, all the different things, the greed, the, the lying, the cheating, all of that, that we all do. Even, even if we're, even if we're saved, if, if we're, even if we're serving Jesus, we do them to a degree, but, um, that desire to move away from that life, the whole, the, the key to it is having that faith and trust in Jesus. And then, you know, every day trying to, um, move more in that direction and, and be better than you were the day before. And then taking, you know, opportunities when you have the opportunity to do a good work in someone else's life, you know, the Bible speaks to that too. If you have the power to do something to help this person, you know, don't act like you don't and, and don't, don't, uh, don't walk away when you, when you can help. And, and I think that's on a lot of different levels. It's, it's of course, monetarily, we think of it that way, but when you do have knowledge, um, in a specialized area like this and, and you don't share it. And, and if you have a situation where a young woman, you know, like the pregnancy centers have, okay, she's at the end of her rope with this situation and you don't speak hope to her and, and, and truth and hope, you know, at the same time, um, we've missed the mark. We've, we've missed what we're, what we're here for and, and what we're called to do. And I, I think it positively, I think, the, you know, there's a lot of negatives about the situation of an unplanned pregnancy and being in that situation. But I think that it also uh, lends, it, lends itself to an opportunity to help young women and the, and the young man probably involved, maybe even the parents and, and, and the rest of the family. Um, the, the help shown, the mercy shown, the giving the message of Jesus at the same time. I think that sometimes that helps people that weren't able, able, ever able to see it before to it becomes real to them and then their whole life is changed yeah and it's sometimes when with all of the reasons why people are promoting abortion as being like the solution like for example um this child can end up in in a welfare situation they're going to have a terrible life they're going to be um you know you know the there's, they're going to, you know, they're going to have down syndrome. There's, there's different, you know, like all these different layers, but in reality, those are not reasons for someone to not live. I believe those are, you know, I, I'm a big fan of rooting for the underdog, rooting for the person who's got, you know, more ground to make up rooting for the person that's currently behind in a, you know, in a, in a basketball game, you know, rooting for the one to catch up and, you know, to keep playing and, and honestly, whether someone wins a basketball game or not, the fact that they're getting to play is pretty re remarkable, you know, just getting the chance to play and have a, and having a life and, you know, just to participate in life at the level that you have is, is worth having that chance. And just because someone's parent, you know, may be inconvenienced or because 
or some various reason, there's, that's not a reason for someone to not have, a, you know, to not have breath or the, their first birthday. And I feel like, yeah, I feel like there's a lot to, um, it just feels like there's all these reasons that, that, that wouldn't pass when it comes to a five-year-old, you know, five-year-olds are also inconvenient to parents. They're also um, very dependent on parents. And, but yet everyone seems to be in agreement. And for some reason, the, the most vulnerable, the youngest of our population are the ones who are being um, victimized by, you know, because of convenience, because they're just a few weeks away from being viable or a few weeks away from being born. Um, and it just, it just feels, and it, and it seems like it's really obvious that if something is growing, then it's living. I mean, that's, I mean, it's not like it's a complex definition. If it's growing, then yeah, that's no longer a sediment or a rock that is now a living organism. And if it constantly has the pattern of going, of growing into a human, like that feels like there, you know, that growth, that growth pattern is consistent. Like we were all in that growth pattern. Mm -hmm. um, like every single person had that same growth pattern from conception to birth. Um, and so it's not like this is unique. It's, it's backed by a science. It's, the only reason why it's up for debate is because of false beliefs. Like it, it feels like that's the reason why it's being, you know, turned into an issue is because it goes up against culture, you know, cultural preferences by some groups that prefer to have that treat abortion like birth control. Um, but it's not preventing pregnancy or life. It's stopping life. And it's just, yeah. And that's just, um, it's just, yeah, but it just seems so obvious to me. I don't, I, I have a hard time, you know, I feel like the only reason why someone would believe it is because they want to believe it and not because it's backed by data. Um, there is, I mean, there doesn't seem to be any data that supports um, it not being a life. Like it doesn't, I mean, it's only preference that can support that. Right. And along that line, again, uh, again, what got me into this was the pathway of trying to do something about all the the unfit, uh, the people that were being killed basically by, by the, the lifestyles that we were living, you know, we have been living for a while and trying to find a multiple uh, exponential way to, to deal with it and finding out what the impact of that, of those 36 weeks or whatever it is, you know, mm -hmm. in the womb, um, it makes me remember what the inventor of the sonogram said, and you may, may already know this already, I don't but I do. Well, he, he used the word existence, uh, and I would substitute in their life because okay. I'm with you, you know, at conception, I think we got life, life going. There's a whole lot of the science will tell us there's a lot of complicated things that are and miraculous things that are all about a living, living being being there. Well, first of all, the DNA is, is, is different, you know, from, from the, from either, either parent, it's a combination of the two. Uh, but he said that the first 40 weeks of existence as far as your health goes, are more important than, than the next 40 years of, mm. of, of your existence. So uh, again, um, coming from my background, health and wellness, very definitely that baby is alive in there and what's happening to it, the environment that it's in, uh, especially, as I said earlier, you know, related to the, the mother's um, state of health and that type of thing is having a huge effect on, on it as far as how it's going to be you know formed and that type of thing 
And also, of course, the, the mother, if she's under a lot of duress, you know, if she's under a lot of stress, it's effect, that's affecting it as well so in a, in a negative way. So the environment, the ecology that the woman is in um, affects the baby biochemically greatly too. So, I mean, yeah, that would lend itself to what you were saying as far as the baby does, doesn't suddenly become, you know, alive when it, when it leaves the birth canal, it's, it's being affected. It's being either improved or, or, or not improved or, you know, hurt by what's going on to with it in inside the womb there from the very beginning. And, uh, um, yeah, it, it's, it's, to me, it's a, one of those things is very obvious, but I understand why people, um, come to this uh, or end up being you know looking at it from the other perspective i understand it but i don't i don't agree with it you know so yeah and yeah but and people have a right to of course have the have whatever opinion they have on it but um the facts of the matter and this is my argument with the powers that be on the university campus the facts of the matter the scientific facts are one thing and then what you want to have politically is another thing this, again it goes to the the things we mentioned uh, named with the the birth uh, a man birth, giving birth and can't be able to define a biological uh, woman even though you're supreme court justice uh, uh the 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 young man that's in the pool you know with uh, swimming against the the biological uh, women and there is no contest because you know he's got 80 percent more uh, muscle fiber in his upper body and 50 percent more in his lower body than they do just just because of the male uh, hormones mm -hmm. So, and again, with the rest of, there's just so many other things. There's so many elements uh, to, to know about this whole, whole um, subject, but it's, it makes things like that. All of that makes sense as far as why things are the way they are, but it comes down to that really there's a factual approach to it. And then there's a kind of a political approach to it. So, um, uh, and I think, I think young people need to be taught the factual, the scientifically factual evidence-based uh, approach. So, so if someone asked you, how would you define a woman? What would, what would you say to a question, to that question? Well, there's two things. One, uh, a woman would have an XX chromosome pattern instead of an XY. And, and the other thing is uh, she would have uh, ovum or eggs as far as her sex, sex gamete. And, and the other, the other people that aren't women would, ha would have sperm as their sex gamete. And that's consistent across all. Yeah. Almost all, uh, spe species and not, not just humans. So, uh, males are, have the smaller and usually more mobile, uh, sex gamete. Uh, and then females have the, have the larger, um, and less mobile, and also carry, uh, carries with it uh, nutrition. It's a, and much bigger. So, the for for instance, the female, uh, the egg is the largest cell in in the in the human body, and the sperm is the smallest cell in, in the human body. Hmm. So, uh, and again, very very mobile. Uh, there's a lot a lot to it as far as the way the sperm moves and the way the egg makes its you know its way down the fallopian tube and the the whole process that God created there is so. You know, it's so wondrous. Uh, the the verse we're fearfully and wonderfully made, that really points that up. Uh, how how that whole thing works. Yeah, and and it seems like one of the other one of the new things that are being expressed a great deal is when someone has a natural miscarriage or they have an ectopic pregnancy, um, that that would be somehow not allowed 
um, you know, under the, you know, with abortion being outlawed or in some states with Roe versus Wade being overturned. Um, but it, I don't, I, I honestly can't imagine anyone saying that, you know, a full, you know, an atopic pregnancy is not allowed to be dealt with because I would, you know, the life of the mother is the only life in that situation that could be preserved under our current science. Um, and that is obviously, you know, the priority of science, you know, of medical care should be all the patients, but saving as many patients as possible. Um, yes. And so saving the mom in that situation is, you know, in the current, that's what, we, that's what needs to happen yes. um, for ectopic pregnancy. Um, or when it comes to a miscarriage, helping that, you know, helping, making sure that the remains of the, of the baby are, are, um, you know, no longer, they don't stay inside the woman and could cause like a infection or something of that nature. Um, and it's making sure that the baby is completely brought out to, again, save them, save the, the patient that can be saved in that situation, because one patient already died and the mom is, you know, needs help and care. What are your thoughts on those situations? Oh, yeah, I completely agree. Uh, again, it's a situation where, you know, an abortion is a willful killing uh, of a living being that is unnecessary. And what you're describing is uh, making a choice to, to save the one, the human being that can be saved in that situation. And, and so, no, I think that I would be totally against uh, any kind of legal situation set up where uh, a young woman could be blamed for those those um, scenarios that you just described and and you know be charged or something like that with with uh, whatever you know manslaughter yeah. or, or whatever because uh, again it's it's uh, you know it, it comes down to common sense and to a lot of degrees and but then also just what's the science on it and and what's the science say and the science would say exactly what you're you know citing there which is you've got two people involved and you've got a situation where you can't save one, but you can save the other. And then the, on the other situation, um, you know, the, the if an, if a miscarriage has happened, and my wife and I, you know, we had a miscarriage situation. And it was it was a very hard thing to go through, um, but it's something that you know happens. Actually, happens. You know, we don't know it, but it happens like fifty percent of the time because it doesn't implant. Uh, there's all these times where it, it just it doesn't doesn't uh, work work out. And again, it's about fifty percent of the time, the science says. So, um, to blame the 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 mother uh, with that is just that would be as unjust as as we both I think agree that we feel that abortion itself is is. Um, with everything there's it's kind of like sex ed or sex sexual integrity ed is uh, again the way i'd like to kind of re reimagine it to use that term um there's a there's a middle there's a sweet spot there's a there's a there's a just middle to it where you know you just don't take the liberty of oh you know this you had you had a miscarriage well you must have meant for that to happen and and so we're gonna charge you or whatever that's that's i think a lot of people that uh, want to kind of uh, sensationalize the situation and, and uh, want to throw up all the all the, the reasons that, that it shouldn't be uh, where each state decides for itself, which is all this is going to be if it is overturned from what I understand. Each state will determine for itself. Yeah. Um, yeah. So it'd be, it'll be by the representatives instead of the five to four decision by the court. Um, so 
yeah, I mean, I don't think people that are on the on the uh, pro life side are looking to be unfair or or um, uh, you know really corrupt because that would be, in my opinion, that would be very corrupt to be as corrupt as yeah. as being a, a, a you know the, as abortion uh, seems to be as far as um, when it's carried out. Yeah. So like like if a woman doesn't take her prenatal vitamins, there, I don't I can't imagine anyone having a consequence for that. And if that resulted in, you know, whether or not that results in miscarriage or not, I just don't think, you know, essentially the idea is willful abortion is completely different than spontaneous, natural miscarriage. Um, and, and um, yeah, essentially, I, I think the, the pro-life group would say, you know, taking a RU46 abortion pill or having a, an abortion procedure to to end the life of a of of a of a lot of a living growing baby is what we're we're saying you know we, we think that the baby's dignity and the baby's life is worth protecting and and striving to support and and we have a desire for uh, excitement and passion and you know essentially for joy to be surrounding that child more so than destruction and like that's that's the and, and when it comes to natural miscarriage, you know, that's a time to mourn and be sad and make sure that the mom is taken care of medically. Yeah. Again, could, could not agree more with, with you on that. And I have a huge amount of compassion for that, that situation. Um, yes. It's, it's when it's, when it's volitional, you know, when it's a, it's a decision that's made and um, you know, it, it, it really, it really puts uh, both the, the mother and the, and the child uh, in, in, in danger in a lot of cases. I'll have to say that I didn't find this out either till, till recently, but my, my grandmother, my, my father's mother died as a result of a, a abortion back in the 1920s. And uh, I mean, then of course the baby died with her, but um, that that affected our family because of the way my father my father never was very emotionally available he was a great father uh, probably the best man I've ever known um, but he never was able to express love the way that you know you, you would have wanted him to be able to and I, and once I under once I realized what had happened I understood more um why he's emotional he was emotionally shut off he his this happened with his mother when he was one about one one a little over one years old so um abortion can be dangerous to everybody involved including including the woman and it has devastating uh, uh, effects on, in families um you know oftentimes uh, whichever whichever way it goes so um yeah I, I, we're in total agreement with it would be just as bad to be corrupt on the side of it, of trying to stick young women with they didn't take, take their vitamins. So that they're at fault yeah. or this, that, or the other. Um, yeah. I, I just think it's, you know, essentially false beliefs, but being, being put on the pro, you know, essentially being put onto our side, but it's more like, it feels more like mud being splattered more so than it being real. Cause I don't think anyone on our side on the pro-life Jesus loving side is calling for that at all. No. Um, but I do feel like we're, you know, the attacks are relentless when it comes to 
you know, political preference, you know, and trying to derail, you know, essentially to get some one, you know, I feel like the opposition's viewpoint is very, um, they're very, you know, aggressive at getting their, getting their way. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I think everybody should be in agreement that helping young women not find themselves in that situation where they're unmarried and, and, and really young and poor, you know, um, or, you know, they don't have means basically, yeah. Um, I think everybody's, it helps it's to everybody's advantage. And I, hopefully we could all agree that helping them not arrive at that place would be the best, you know, for society and, um, the, all pregnancies be wanted, uh, mm. wanted children. And again, that there's a guy that's, uh, researched this, um, uh, his name slips me right now, but Heckman, I think is his name is a Nobel prize winning, um, researcher, economic researcher. And, and he's, um, he made the observation that just the variable of whether or not a, a baby then a child is born into a two, a mom and a dad family, that variable alone, um, determines so much of the, the baby child and then, then the young adult and then on into the adulthood, so much of their uh, level of success or their chances for success or their chances for not having success. So just that, that one variable alone. So again, young people getting married and I would advocate for younger than what they're, what they're doing now, because again, I know that the uh, peak for uh, fertility for, for girls, for women is 19 to 29 and for guys is from 22 to 25. And I think, you know, of course, sex drive, especially on the guy's side of it, uh, testosterone levels reach their highest level at 17 years, uh, years of age. And then they just barely start decreasing by a per percent, especially if a, if, a, if a guy is inactive at age 30. So God, I think has given us some, um, some hints and some direction just by the way, physiologically humans are constructed and by the different, the different times in our life when different things are like, like that fertility situation when it's, when it's highest. Also, you know, again, if women get married younger, they start having babies younger, they, they breastfeed them, they have more babies, all of those things lower their cancer uh, chances, uh, reproductive cancers over their lifetime as well. That's another fascinating um, fact. And again, the, the, the Catholic approach to it, this is something I learned and started and really started admiring and appreciating their approach to it, that, that God's God's in charge of how many, you know, babies come along. I mean, some of them, you know, some of them that, that believe this way, it actually turns out that, that for the women, um, it ends up being the healthiest, um, there's exceptions obviously, but, but the statistics are with you, especially with breast cancer of not developing that. And uh, breast cancer has become a scourge because it's a hundred times more prevalent than it was a hundred years ago. And that's because again, I'm getting a little bit into the, into uh, the, the, the content, but the, again, this is Vicki Thorne always said, there's, you're going to learn something today that you didn't ever know before. And I, I hopefully every time that I speak, uh, that'll be true too. I want to say that to honor her. Um, but Women, when they have when they have cycles, when they have their menstrual cycle, um, every time the the in the uterine lining and and uh, in the breasts, the the um, cells change over, and 
in in the ovary when when an egg ripens and the follicle literally tears open it leaves a scar on the, on the uh inside of the ovary so in the past where in, in our you know ancestors they they generally had about 160 cycles in a lifetime our women are having about 450 cycles in their lifetime because they're on the, a lot of them are on the pill um they're um and then um you know they're, they're they're practicing birth control they're not they're not breastfeeding or or if they are not not very long they're not having many children or in a lot of cases not none and a lot of them are never not getting married of course these days they're, if they are together with a guy they're cohabiting so um it's a very much more un, unhealthy uh lifestyle for them and Breast cancer took over uh, the, the world's number one cancer diagnosis in December of 2020, as if we needed some other reason not to like 2020. Um, but it, it took over from, from lung cancer. And again, 1% of the breast cancer cases are in males. So that leaves 99% in, in females. And so it's become a quite an epidemic. I mean, you talk about a pandemic, it's, it's, it's definitely mm -hmm. a pandemic and it's got you know, 45% of them that they get breast cancer die, die from it. So um, compared to, to uh, COVID with what was it down there less than 1%. Yeah. So anyway, there's a lot of things to be said about, I call the natural lifestyle pattern. Um, there's a lot of things to be said about imitating the way our ancestors lived on a lot of different levels, the way they ate, the way they exercised, or they had to, they had to work, uh, the way they related to each other um, their, their, their courtship and marriage patterns and their, their amount of babies, they, the amount of kids they had in their, in their, in their families. Um, just so there's a lot of, um, natural, um, protective, uh, elements to that as far as health and wellness goes. Well, Dr. Joe, I really appreciate all this, you know, great education and insight and, would you wrap up our podcast by just praying for um, our country and the, the people who are affected by the things we're talking about? Be happy to. And honored to be here with you, by the way. My pleasure. Thank you. Lord, again, uh, we just thank you for always being here with us. And we thank you that you created us in a way that, you know, if we listen to your word, if we, if we study uh, the Bible and we look at the design that you have for, for human beings, that we can trust your word uh, to be true as far as the way we're supposed to live our lives and the fact that it's, it's going to make us the healthiest that we can be. And it's, it's the optimal lifestyle, not only in health, but also in, in our uh, way that we relate to other people and, and just in general, the, the fulfillment and the thriving in life. It's, it's uh, your ways are higher than any of our ways. And we all have tendencies to sin uh, no matter how long we've been, you know, living the Christian life. Um, and we, we pray that you'll give us more and more wisdom in ways to move away from that. And again, for this conversation with Jacob and I to get today, especially, we pray that you'll bless the conversation we've had uh, to others that may, may listen and watch this and that they'll get um, insights and they'll get maybe even inspiration from some of the things we've discussed and that it'll it'll be a situation where it'll be beneficial to them on many different levels and if there's anybody that's watching and listening that isn't saved that doesn't know you doesn't have you as their personal savior we, we pray that this will be a, 
uh, a step for them in that direction and maybe even cause them to say, you know, I want to investigate this Jesus thing. I want to see what it is to give him my life and, and uh, live my life his way because, you know, for so many people, it isn't working their way as it wasn't working for me before I came to you. So we just pray that and we just thank, for, thank you for this opportunity and we pray for the future that, um, that we'll be able to use our gifts and talents to, uh, to further your kingdom going into the future. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. I've got one more question for you, Dr. Joe, sure. before we wrap this up, actually. Sure. So when someone's in a marriage or relationship, and let's say they, they didn't have the receptors created that needed to, by having the right kind of dating situation take place during the courtship, mm -hmm. what would be the way for them to reestablish those kind of receptors, you know, now that they're, maybe they're having like a dysfunctional marriage and they're, that part wasn't there to support you know, what would be your advice for someone in that situation? Hmm. That's an excellent question that I haven't really had before. So I appreciate that. that well, and if you want to hold that one, we could always reschedule and come back to that as a future question. If you wanted to some time, or if you want to take it on now, it's fine too. I'd be, I'd be fine to take it on, but I think that would be a good one amongst many other subjects uh, because I really believe it or not, hardly got into as much of the content at all, which was, I, I, I just wanted to show, I wanted us to discuss the need, I think, for the for this education, and then the fact that that we have it there, we have we have it uh, as far as uh, the tools that we need to, to do it. So, yeah, I'd be happy to maybe start with that one next time because that's that's very challenging. Because yeah, uh, I, I feel yeah. like there's you know when, when someone doesn't have that dating relationship in the beginning, that might you know be ideal. The question might be is what would be a you know a good um, remedy or recipe for them to consider to try and strengthen those, that weak spot, uh, perhaps that they've been living with. So. Well, one thing I will say just as a preliminary answer to that, and then we can, like I said, hopefully we can get, get into another discussion because this has been a great discussion from my perspective. Um, there's, there's ministries out there. There's one that I can think of right now named Grace Marriage, and there's another one, um, and I can't remember the name of it, but uh, they do a good job of, helping couples to make their relationship with each other, the center of their, of uh, their lives really as a married, as a married couple. So, um, okay. yeah. And, and, and believe me, it's, it's very intentional. It's uh, where you, you, you know, you raise the priority of being together and doing things together and having fun. Like you probably did when you're first dating and getting back to that dating type of relationship. Um, they, they make that a high priority and, a regular uh, lifestyle type of type of thing. So, and again, we can talk about more detail uh, when we get back together. But okay, that's a that's a very important um, remedial situation. That you know, our marriages are so important. I mean, this is something with, real quick with the college students. The college students that have had, they put so much time, effort, money into into getting a degree, and it's all important. And again, your job that you get from it, hopefully, is is a huge part of your life. But your marriage is a, is a much bigger, in my opinion, um, you know, factor in your success or not. And, and there's so little time and effort um, thought put into it so many times going into it. You know, you, anybody can go down and get a marriage license and you don't have to have any preparation really for it. So um, what we're about is trying to do something about that as well, trying to raise marriage to the level of uh, appreciation and, and, and priority that it should be, I think. Mm -hmm. 
on up to the mountain of mercy to the crimson perpetual tide kneel down on the shore be thirsty no more go underneath your fire Follow Christ to the holy mountain, sinner sorry and wrecked by the fall. Cleanse your heart and your soul in the fountain that flowed for you and for me and for all. At the wonderful, tragic, mysterious tree on You and-